Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Surviving stage 3C and stage 4 colon cancer and their treatments and overcoming their long-term side effects taught Jay Einbender that cancer is not just a journey of the body, but equally a journey of the mind and soul, and that all three must be treated concurrently. Thank you so much, Jay, for coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. First, tell everybody where you're located because it's a very beautiful place. You know, I'm probably the highest person you're interviewing. And in that sense, I live at 9,500 feet in Telluride, Colorado, which is in southwestern Colorado in the San Juan Mountains, for those that don't know. Oh, sounds so beautiful. And you still have snow because this is March right now, the time of this recording. Do you have snow year-round there? Uh, on the mountains, sometimes. Wow. But since we had three to four feet of snow this week, so it's great conditions. Oh, my goodness. Jay, take us back to the beginning of your cancer journey. Yeah, I had no symptoms, was in great health, and really took care of my um, body, mind, and soul. And two weeks before I was literally on my deathbed, um, I started having symptoms uh, in my lower left abdomen, and I attributed them to my workout routine and, you know, being competitive with myself. Was it and, pain? Uh, what kind of symptoms? Um, a, a pain, then I started getting dizziness, and I started getting nauseousness, and at the very end, blood in my stool. And um, I had recently um, come back into contact with a friend that I hadn't seen in 35 years, and he had given me his phone number and told me he was a doctor in New York where I was living at the time, New York City. And so I called him for a referral to a gastroenterologist to find out that he was a world-renowned gastroenterologist and heading that department at New York University Langone Medical Center. Your so, friend? Yes. So oh, I my gosh. <laughs> guardian angels um, on my side um, from the very beginning, and I didn't know um, how many I had. And I called him, and he said, come into my office 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. You're like family. And within 24 hours, I was diagnosed and under the scalpel. What? Well, yep. okay. Before you were under the scalpel, I mean, what did what happened in those 24 hours? What kind of tests were done for? Um, well, he determined? did a colonoscopy. And um, I was 54 and should have had one at 50, but I thought they were invasive. I wasn't up to speed that they knock you out. And it's very simple, low-key procedure that everyone should get done a little later than 50. And um, he immediately saw the size of my tumor, determined it had been growing five to 10 years and broken my colon wall. And he knew I was on my deathbed. Oh my gosh. And what, when you woke up, first of all, how long ago was this? And then when you woke up, what did he say? Well, he didn't do the surgery. Um, a different surgeon, um, a head of surgery actually at NYU Langone did my surgery and 
in my recovery was, you know, two to three days to really kind of get back into it and realize what was going on and to rise above all the pain medications that I was on. And uh, this individual um, said it was one of the most nightmarish surgeries he's ever performed. But in his opinion, he was successful and he thought I would come through to the other side, you know, in addition to the other treatments I was supposed to undergo. Why was it such a nightmare? Did he tell you? He didn't tell me. He didn't go into details. Um, so I, I don't know. But this is a man that doesn't mince words. And how long ago was this? Uh, 2012, May 2012 was when I was first diagnosed with advanced stage three. Wow. So coming up on 10 years. So after that surgery, what was the recommended treatment, if any? Uh, six months of adjuvant full Fox chemotherapy. And it's interesting because I knew that chemotherapy was toxic, toxic, and I'm very homeopathic and was anti the idea from the get-go. Um, but my parents, my three sisters, and my three children had access to all my doctors behind the scenes, and literally they begged me to do it, and that's why I did it. Otherwise, I would have foregone it and just continued to heal myself homeopathically. Wow, that's so interesting. So you did it for them. I did it for them because the, the doctors told them I would die without chemotherapy. And I was on the fence about whether that was true. And there was no way to prove whether it was right or wrong. Yeah, it's kind of hard and to prove. The side effects that came with the chemotherapy. And that was one of the reasons that I didn't want to subject myself to it. And those, many of those side effects came true. So tell us about the chemotherapy regimen you did, because most people won't necessarily be familiar, and also a lot has changed in the last 10 years. And what side effects did you experience? Yeah, I had my chemotherapy at Sloan Kettering, which is one of the top in the United States. And it was a six-month program, and every two weeks I would go into the hospital. I'd spend six hours and get the um, uh, the IV and other um, you know chemo cocktail uh, drugs pumped into me. And then I had a, um, a fanny pack that held a portable chemo. And uh, all in all, I was on chemo for 72 hours straight, um, six in a hospital, six hours in a hospital, the other, you know, two and a half days um, on my own. And they would inject me with a heavy dose of steroids. So for the first 24 hours, I was able to operate before the drugs really took me down the rabbit hole and, and sunk me and made me fatigued and the side effects started. And um, so that was every two weeks for three days straight, I was on chemotherapy. And um, my course was kind of unusual in that they know the side effects to look for when you're on chemotherapy like numbness and tingling in your hands and feet, loss of balance, because one of the drugs I was given, oxyplatinum, has those side effects and they can be quite severe. And I was one of the few percentage that coasted through chemotherapy without any side effects from that drug. Until 11 days later, it was like somebody flipped a switch in my body and I had severe chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy in my hands and feet that literally disabled my mobility. Wait, so this was at the end of the six months? 11 days after the six what? months ended, and I thought I had skated through without um, some of the um, 
detrimental side effects from oxyplatinum and it only happens to about one or two percent of people who are on this treatment that it occurs like that that you coast through had i been exhibiting the symptoms during it they would have cut back the drug dosage but because i didn't i maintained the full dosage of all my drugs that is so wild it's almost as if your body was just building up and building up those toxins and then all of a sudden just oh my goodness and it, it chemotherapy compromised my immune system um, you know, I had um, shots called Nulesta every two weeks. It cost $10,000 a shot to keep my white blood cell levels high. But um, your white blood cell count is supposed to be between three and 10 and a good number is around seven. And ever since cancer, I've been below three. And um, when you're below three, you're supposed to be very ill all the time. And the good news is, um, even though I had another bout of cancer and I had other side effects, um, I'm in relatively good health now. So it it compromised my autoimmune system. So take us back that you get through the six months, you think you're good. The side effects kick in 11 days after you think you're out the window. And what happens? Well, when I I lost my my mobility and it was very painful to walk and I could not run or even imagine doing anything to put much pressure on my feet and even walking, I could only do up to 30 to 60 minutes before the pain came, became too intense. And I was living in a six story walk up in New York City at the time with no elevator. So that was another challenge, and I had a dog that had to be Oh, my left. goodness. Um, but, you know, you, life goes on, and cancer tests your resilience. And you don't, you know, they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think we have innate strength that we don't know how deep that reservoir is until we're forced to tap it. And so I like to say what doesn't kill, kill you makes you instead more self-aware. And self-awareness is the key to transformation and growth as a human being. And so that's what helped carry me, the mind-soul part, um, over the body issues that I was having. And one of the ways that I survived chemo and cancer as well as I did was another side effect of chemo was for six months straight, I slept on average three hours a night. It was like somebody was putting electricity in my body and I was feeling it all the time. And I started journaling. And when I started journaling, it were thoughts that were channeled to me from higher powers that I had never expressed before. And those thoughts then became kind of a guidepost for my mind-soul journey. And um, I realized and started doing deep research that there was confirmed research that mind-soul treatment should begin at point of diagnosis along with body treatment, but it doesn't happen. And so prior to that, I'm going to interrupt you. So prior to that, you mentioned being holistic before and and how you didn't want to do the chemo. Before cancer, were you, would you consider yourself a spiritual person? Were you doing other mind body things to use that terminology? Or was it really this, this experience that brought all of that to the surface for you? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Exercise was a religion for me, like mm. breathing is. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was hardcore into weight training and um, biking and walking. And I always considered myself a spiritual person 
but my cancer experience accelerated it to an entirely new level that was unbelievably powerful. Um, it taught me a lot of lessons and accelerated those lessons. And I live by those lessons, which I consider personal mantras, but they're actually mantras for all of us. And so um, as I did research on, you know, mind-soul therapies, um, and I started this journey and collecting all these thoughts, I realized that, you know, I needed access to these and not in an integrative health center. I mean, NYU had one, Sloan Kettering had one, but they were remote. They weren't available when I needed them at two or three in the morning. It was in extreme pain. Um, it took time and effort and often money to access these things. And cancer stresses your finances from the very beginning. And so I started to actually create a concept, which is now called Heart First, which I've been developing for 10 years, um, which will be a free MindSoul app for cancer patients, uh, combining the therapeutic arts into uh, videos that transcend any pain or stress and suffering you're undergoing. Wow. I, I want to go back to your cancer journey. So I know because before I hit record, we talked about skiing and you used to ski a lot. So I want to go back to the neuropathy and how that impacted your life and going forward. And then also, I definitely want to hear about the recurrence or the, the second type of cancer you had. Yeah, well, I told that original story about the project I'm working on because of that, I needed to go out and find visual artists and musicians and filmmakers to do pieces for what I had journaled. And so my mobility was compromised. I had six months left on the lease of my Jeep. And I said, this is how I'm going to find my mobility and freedom. And with no agenda, except I know people all over the United States, I got in my car, I drove, and that gave me the sense of freedom that had been taken away from me overnight. And during that process, I met people through synchronistic events that you could never have imagined that could be you know, a book in and of itself, who then became part of my project. And by meeting them and sharing my story with them, they had their stories that they shared with me, and that continued to help me heal and gave me purpose when I needed to find it because cancer and the side effects took me out of the professional world that I'd been in. I was unable to work um, as I had before. So, What did you do before the cancer? Um, I started out in Wall Street and uh, then I moved into entrepreneurship. Um, and when I was diagnosed with cancer, I was working in the commercial real estate field. So this adventure that you had, is this where you decided to leave New York City and move to Colorado? Is that no, I moved, I moved back to San Francisco where I'd been before New York City and moved to the beach to be in the lowest stress environment that I possibly could. I love the beach. Um, I live in flip-flops for a long period of my life. So I found a small community, Stinson Beach, outside of San Francisco, where I used to live and uh, live there for about the next uh, four or five years. And tell us about the second cancer. I don't know if it was the same one or not, but you're going to tell us. So tell us about what happened. You know, just just tell us about the second part of cancer. Well, I moved back to the beach and just focused on a low stress life, focused on my project, focused on health and exercise. And um, 
Then I had an oncologist and in, 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 during a regular checkup and CT scan, um, and I was having shortness of breath when I was walking and that had never occurred before. Um, some spots showed up on the CT scan. And so the cancer, usually if you go stage four from colon cancer, it goes to your liver. In 80% of the cases, 20% go to your lung. Mine, for whatever reason, went to my lung and uh, lodged itself in my left lung. And um, we discussed what should happen. And it went to uh, the highest surgeon there. And they wanted to take out my entire left lung. What? What? That's why you always get second and third opinions, because it's an absolutely brutal operation. Um, with a lot of side effects potentially and a long recovery period. And after what I had been through in my recovery period and the other side effects from chemo, um, it was the last thing I wanted to do. But if it was going to save my life, I knew I had to consider it. And uh, I went to Mayo Clinic in Rochester for a second opinion. And they told me about um, a new robotic surgery and um, called a lipectomy. I'm getting it right, lipectomy. And uh, I then tracked down the two doctors that um, originated the surgery at Cedar sinai LA. I went down there, consulted with them, and they said, do not have your whole lung taken out. That's old school. We can just take out half your left lung and with much less invasive. Interestingly enough, I went back to UCSF, where my oncologist was in San Francisco, and he said, I totally disagree. There's a good chance you'll get another cancer occurrence, and we should just get this all out at once. And I want you to speak to head of lung transplant surgery. She's the number one lung transplant doctor in the United States. So I said, okay, due diligence. So I go and speak to her in the middle of the conversation. She says, can I speak to you off the record? And I go, sure. She goes, Jay, if this were me, I'd have your entire left lung taken out. I just need to tell you that. And so then all of a sudden, I was stuck in the middle again about which I should do, and I grappled with it. I spoke to some very close friends and my family, and I decided to go robotic surgery. It was the best decision I ever made, and it helped save my life again and gave me a quality of life that continues to this day. Okay, that is fascinating, and I always advocate for second and third opinions, if you can get them in minimum second opinion, but it often comes down to those really hard decisions where, where the doctors do not agree at all. So can you tell us exactly what it was that, that made you choose the robotic surgery or maybe some insight into your decision-making process? Because People in general struggle with making decisions, but when you're making these life and death decisions, there is just so much pressure to make the right one. Well, there's a wealth of resources that, first of all, you could always tap online and anything you could tap online, you know, with an asterisk, um, you have to be very careful. Um, But I do a lot of deep research. Um, I got onto a lot of websites that doctors and nurses that are on so I could get access to studies about people who had gone through this, you know, big lung surgery, the side effects, the recovery period. And it was just, there was so much risk there that I decided I would minimize that risk 
even if it meant that I increased the chance that I could get a reoccurrence of, um, you know, stage four cancer again, that could possibly be fatal. And it's a deeply personal decision. And I think that by that time, I developed the mindset that every day of life is a blessing. And if you treat it as that, death is not a foe. It's a fellow traveler. It's a friend. Treat it with that respect. And all of a sudden, you have a completely different, you know, psychological and mental and energetic outlook on what will happen. And it recalibrates your vibrations. And um, I don't live in fear of it. And so for me, I just wanted to get it done with as few side effects as possible, the quickest recovery as possible, and then whatever the future held for me, Kesarasara. Oh, that is so helpful. That is really helpful. It sounds like you really prioritized what was important to you, and that led you to the decision. What was the worst moment for you in all of it, whether it's the first time, second time, what was the worst moment? Actually, it's a really, I think you're going to find this to be an unexpected answer. When I was going through chemo and my family and my closest friends were so concerned I wasn't going to make it, all of them wanted to bend over backwards to be with me and spend time with me. And it made me really uncomfortable because I was suffering. And then I was watching them suffer because they couldn't help me. And so I ended up isolating myself, especially during that six months of chemotherapy in a way, shape and form I never expected, where my dog became my best friend and constant healer and sitter. And he really was a healer for me. And but it was really tough watching other people watch me and them not being able to do anything about it. So that's my that was my answer. Someone once told me that the reason she didn't bring her mother to appointments with her was because she didn't want to manage her mother's emotions. She just couldn't deal with it. She just had to focus on herself. And her mother always wanted to come with her to the appointments and be supportive. And But she said she would get too emotional. I couldn't handle it. So I just she just went by herself. To have yeah, I made a decent point when I was going through chemo, almost everybody else, because we're separated by curtains, had family or family members or friends there. I refused to have them. I did not want them to share in this part of journey. It was just me, myself, and I, the three of us. <laughs> That's how I operate a lot of my life. And I really, I mean, it's so funny with COVID, like I'm so used to self-isolating and so comfortable with it that when COVID hit, it was like, this is not even a big deal for me. And yes, I love company and I like being social and going out to events and everything, but I don't need any of that either. I, I'm very comfortable in my own skin and heart. People always think of me as an extrovert, but I'm really an introverted extrovert. Mm -hmm. I like spending time with people in limited amounts and with certain people, not everybody, but I do like time to myself. I mean, I've been a reader since I was yeah. you know, as long as I can remember. And I like that time and I don't want to be interrupted. And, but if I only, if I don't spend any time with other people, then it becomes too much. So there has yeah, to be. Yeah. I'm very much the same way. Yeah. But uh, dogs, your best friend, absolutely. 100%. They are always there for you. <laughs> They're always happy to see you. Um, well, it's funny because my dog would never, it was a uh, 12 pound Havanese and he would never sit on my lap because I was his alpha, but anybody else's he would. 
when I was sick, he sat on my lap and would not leave my side. He was always touching me. So there's something to that. And it really, I don't know what I would have done without him. Oh, oh, that's so sweet. Animals know. They know. know. Yeah, they really know. I recommend highly to have an animal by your side during this journey and then thereafter. Yeah. How about your best moment in all of it? Well, I think just the best moment is the personal growth that I achieved as a human being and the fact that it made me a better person. And it really fine-tuned my understanding of what's important in life. And I really kind of distill it down to um, two words that each have two tenets. And then I live by that. That's my life's credo now. And the first is love. And love is has two um, tenets to it, which is self-love. You have to love yourself first and foremost. Warts and all, side effects, cancer, whatever, it doesn't matter. Love yourself and then share that love with your family, with your friends, with a partner, with your pets. And that's where life happens. Um, the second is purpose. Out of the 8 billion people in this world, we all have a singular purpose that is unique onto us and is our gift to others. Know that purpose, pursue it with passion, and then more importantly, share it with others to enrich their lives. And that's the best reward you can get as a human being more than enriching your own. I don't know. I entirely agree with the second one because I'm not sure everybody has a purpose. <laughs> Maybe just most people can't find their purpose. But um, but I love the first one. I 100% agree. And I love the self-love as the first part of that because until you really love yourself, like you said, warts and all, and just accept who you are, it's not that other people won't love you, but it's not on any sort of solid ground. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I, I do. And, you know, the other two words that um, I, I live by are the two words let go. Because mm -hmm. cancer taught me you have to let go of outcomes in life. And we all think that we can control our destiny and where we're going and who we're going to meet and what's going to happen. We have no idea what's going to happen. I never knew I'd be talking to you. All right. Um, I never knew I'd be living at 9,500 feet, um, you know, with missing half a left lung where there's 30% less oxygen. And I have six stents in my heart. That was another side effect from chemo. So um, long story short, let go of trying to determine outcomes and be present in the moment. And it's an art. It's a science. It's not a science. You can't be taught it. But the more you can allow yourself to live in the moment, the more things happen and good things happen. Yeah. Oh, gosh. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very, very beginning? About mind-soul treatment, uh, which my oncologists and doctors had said, you need to treat your mind and soul at the same time. And these are the resources that we can point you to. And um, I'll give you a very quick aside. I was asked to speak to the new um, doctors and residents coming in to NYU Langone after um, uh, I finished with chemo uh, because my doctor thought my case was very special in the project I was working on. And he believed in the mind-soul part of it, unlike many other doctors. 
And so I had 110 of the brightest and best in the country. And we're on this big stage. And Ken Langone, the head of Langone, came down for this conversation. He was interested and wanted to make a point. Mind, soul is important. I also invited the head of integrative health, who I become friendly with, to be there. But she sat in the back wearing a white smock like them. And I said to, I said, you know, um, to the residents, can I ask you three questions? Said, you're tomorrow's best doctors. How many of you have had cancer? Raise your hands. How many of you think raise their hands? And they're in their 20s and 30s. Take a guess, Andrea. Oh, you want me to take a guess? Yes. How many? Do how you many think? of them had had cancer? Not out of 110, how many of, of them might have ever had cancer personally? I was going to say zero or one. I mean, zero. Second question one degree of separation removed, somebody you love and care about, how many, and you were you know, involved with them as a caretaker or a caring person, how many of you have that, that experience? Eight. Five. Okay. And then um, the third question was, how many of you think you can empathize as a doctor with the experience that I went through and would you volunteer to just go through two weeks of chemo? <laughs> oh, no. No, and they all did what you did. They turned away. There's they no way. Yeah. I said, how many of you, because you have no idea yeah. what we are going through, and you're prescribing it, and you're diagnosing it, and you're supposed to have good bedside table manners and be able, and nobody would. You don't know. Nobody, yeah. they, they wouldn't. They know yeah. it's poison. Yeah. And so that, to me, was such an eye-opener um, about this whole process. And so unfortunately, as um, patients, as survivors, we're really on our own more than we should be outside of things like Cancer University and projects that I'm working on, when and if they get to market, and you know so many of the other great projects out there. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's that's great. I'm really glad that you spoke to med school students because that's where you can make a change before they embark on their careers. It's really hard to change people once they're set in their ways. So but that leads to the next question I ask them. How many of you know NYU Langone has an integrative health center? I would How say very few. Zero. Uh, and none I of them knew? Oh, gosh. Can I introduce Diane Rosenstein to stand up and speak? and tell her what she does, why she does it, and where she is, and that you need to tell your patients about her and it. Yeah. And she got up and spoke. And afterwards, Ken Langone came up and said, that was one of the most insightful, inspiring conversations I've ever seen. Thank you so much for being here and you know, being so vulnerable about your case. So, oh, wow. But I'm oh. an advocate. I'm an advocate. What a good experience for, for them and for you. Yeah. So this ties in really well with one of my favorite questions that I always love to ask. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Be an advocate for mind, soul care, concurrent, a point of diagnosis with body care for every patient. And the thing is, it's not patients. For every patient, there are at least nine caregivers between doctors, nurses, family, friends, you know, brothers, sisters, children, et cetera. And so that's understating the number 
and they need mind soul relief too. Yeah. And they put on a game's face, they put on, you know, the strength hat and they are suffering, but they, you're suffering much worse than them. And that's why, you know, I, I talked about earlier when they were in the same room as me, I saw them suffering and I felt helpless to do anything about them for them. Like they felt helpless to do anything for me. So mind, soul care, concurrent with body care, a point of diagnosis for everybody in the cancer food chain. I love that. And I know so many people would agree with you. I would say that's probably at the top, what most people would say. And the thing is, these studies are out there in plain sight. Oh, yeah. But but nobody's shifting it. And, you know, I hope one of these days to be one of those shifters. So. Oh, good. Are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire? Sure. Okay. I don't even know what you're going to answer in this first one. I have no idea, but I'm curious to see. Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountain. Well, you lived at the beach for so long, I wasn't sure. (laughs) The reason is I feel like I can touch heaven here, and my experience brought me closer to heaven, um, and I have no fear of death, and I look look forward to whatever's going to come. And so, yeah, I like being at the high altitude. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. That's a great answer. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. That does not surprise me. (laughs) It seems to suit you really well. What is one word that best describes you? Resilient. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? The last thought I want to hear? The last song you want to hear. Oh, last song I want to hear. Um, Low Spark of High Hill Boys by Traffic. For those who are in their 60s, they would know the song. (laughs) Okay. What about the last meal you want to eat? Lobster. Oh, man, after my own heart. Last person you want to see? God. And the last words you will speak? The best is yet to come. And aside from Cancer U, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please be sure to tell people how they can get in touch you know, with it's you. Resor- it's resources like Cancer University and others that, you know, are there to help. Um, you know, they're, they're created by people who have had the experience. Everybody's experience is unique unto themselves. Um, and, you know, the most important thing I've been able to do is because so many people know about my journey and then they, they get cancer, they know somebody gets cancer, is they refer them to me. And if those people decide to call me, I get so much pleasure in counseling them and I give them the honest truth because cancer is about truth. There's no sugarcoating any of the pain, the hardship, et cetera, but it's a two-sided coin and it can accelerate your growth as a human being. And what better gift is that? So that's, you know, that's okay with me. Cancer is part of my life path. And I think anybody who undergoes any health, major health issue, it's part of your life path and it's meant to teach you lessons. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? They want to reach out. Um, Well, my website is www.com. Heart, H-E-A-R-T, first, F-I-R-S-T, dot X-Y-Z. And um, it talks about my journey, et cetera. And uh, 
then they can always, you know, email me at my full name, J Einbender, one word, J-A-Y-E-I-N-B-E-N-D-E-R at me.com. All right. We will put those links in the show notes and the workshop notes. Jay, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you for holding this space. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.